Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. I'm joined by the only occasionally present commissioning editor, cheese lover and ambler, Thea Lenarduzzi. Hello. Hello. Thank you for postponing. <laughs> Actually, we're talk- I'm not laughing about your holidays, but there is one coming up, isn't there? I'm here next week and then I am away. And but at- so are you. So am I. So what are we going to do? Shall we cancel the podcast, Thea? I don't know. Uh, no, probably no, not. We're probably not going to. So, uh, <laughs> the show goes on. Yeah, so friends of the podcast, Lucy Dallas, the... Token Northerner who occasionally the reads the one. paper, the other Token Northerner, and Toby Lishtig, the Ema McBride fun fanboy. <laughs> fun fanboy. Fun fanboy. I mean, they, they probably are known by other <laughs> n- names and for other things, but that's how I associate them. Uh, we'll be doing this show. So you have one more week of us, and then you get a merciful break from us. If you want to subscribe to the TLS, Google TLS subscriptions, type pod one in the offer code section and get six issues for six pounds. Coming up on the show. We're going to devote the entire programme to the wonderful and luminous figure that is Jane Austen, who died 200 years ago this week. To commemorate the bicentennial, the TLS has published a special book containing the best writing in the paper about Jane Austen over the last 100 years. It's got plenty of modern criticism, alongside original articles by Virginia Woolf and E.M. Forster. If you want to buy it for the J-Night in your life, just go to Amazon and search TLS and Jane Austen. The paper this week is also an Austin fest. We've asked a group of writers and thinkers to define their relationship with Austin. Ian Sansom has reread all six of the novels and tried to examine them afresh. And Charlotte and Gwendolyn Mitchell have answered this all too familiar question. Did Joshua Reynolds paint a portrait of Jane Austen's aunt? The answer, if I may resort to the idiom of clickbait for a moment, will amaze you. Do you know the answer to that question yet? I'm, I can't say it, otherwise... No, just ruin it for everyone, yeah. yeah. It's just ruin it. You can't, you can't give it away. That's the whole you, have to cl- you have to click through. Yeah, exactly. It's the whole opposite of clickbait if you give the answer. Uh, contributing to our Austin Symposium and in joining us in the studio to discuss all things Austin is writer and critic Claire Harmon. We were going to have the commissioning editor responsible for all things 18th century, the only century that matters to him, actually, at the TLS, Michael the Dr. Keynes. But ironically, given his nickname, he is unwell at the moment. So we will do this in his honour, but without him. 
Jane Austen was born in 1775 in a small village in Hampshire, the seventh of eight children. She belongs to that small pantheon of great writers who remain both effortlessly fresh and engaging while still endlessly subject to pastiche. There are zombie versions of Austen novels. There are, as Devony Lozer informed us on this podcast in January, pornographic versions of her novels. Indeed, it's hard to conceive of another great author not Dickens, not Eliot, not James, capable of sustaining such a broad response. What's the reason for it? Or part, it must be the quality of the writing, the acuity of the vision, the universality of the themes, money, pride, love, disappointment, expectation, the confinement of our chance existence. There's also the fact that the brilliance of her output was never allowed to be obscured, as in the case of so many writers, by an indulgent late period or an experimental middle phase. No, she wrote six beautiful, important novels published in a period of seven years. The last, Persuasion, in 1818, arguably even better than the first, Sense and Sensibility, in 1811. There are no duds, no excrescences, no failures. Famously, the Oxford philosopher Gilbert Ryle was once asked whether he ever read novels. Yes, he asserted, all six every year. His reaction is representative of many. Austin will always have her fervent votaries, her impassioned supporters. Ask your acquaintances to rank the six novels in order of preference and you'll guarantee yourself a pleasing half hour of robust fireside debate, just as if you were happily ensconced at Pemberley or Hartfield. We may try that in this podcast. We're all J-knights now, notes Ian Sansom in the TLS this week, and if you're not, look out. To commemorate the bicentennial of her death, we have devoted a paper, book and this podcast to consider what is it that makes Austen so special and so alive in the modern world. Well, to help us do that, we're delighted to welcome writer and critic Claire Harmon. Claire, thank you for coming in. It's a pleasure. Let's try and start generally and, and then focus it in. As this bicentennial happens, what do we need to, to know about Austin, what are people celebrating? Do you think this this week? Well, it's a good question, isn't it? Because it's actually the death that is the anniversary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I'm old enough to remember the bicentenary of her birth in 1975, oh. and it was quite quietly celebrated. I mean, there were some stamps, um, and I can't remember anything else happening at all. I mean, there might have been a few newspaper articles, but I mean, there's a blizzard of of Austin material now and there has been since 2011 when the bicentenary of the first of her novels to be published came out and so that's Sense and Sensibility and really there's no escape so it it does make one wonder what's being celebrated I mean she's an obviously she's a national treasure she is one of the most recognizable names uh, silhouettes it's not probably her but we recognize it as Jane Austen she's become such a smoothly uh, handled and and pass honourable cultural coin that people just can't resist passing it around, celebrating her and um, using she, her. Is it because she's an e- is she an easy read in a way that perhaps certainly Henry James isn't, um, <laughs> Eliot probably isn't, Dickens yeah. has his moments, but there's a lot of bustle and there's lots of there's lots of excrescences in Dickens and, and Jane Austen feels somehow sort of perfectly simple and, and, and elegant. Yes, she is simple, isn't she? I mean, there's nothing I, I, you couldn't give to a, a, an O-level or GCSE student. And I certainly read Austin as a teenager and uh, found her 
puzzling because I didn't find her funny, but she certainly wasn't difficult to read. I mean, she was easy to read. And the, you know, the love stories are what hit you first, aren't they? And they can be read on so many different levels. Uh, she's celebrated as the you know, an ironist of unplumbable depths. Uh, and yet you can also just sit down and have a, a very nice convalescent... Uh, you know, feet by the fire kind of thing. Or with the films, which is what I do when I'm feeling ill. I want to put on a video of, you know, Pride and Prejudice or DVD. And um, if I'm on a plane, you know, stress situation, I'll go for the Jane Austen adaptation because she's just very comforting at one level. Plus, if you go to the novels and want to have a really sort of perplexing um, half hour puzzling over the mor- morality of, of, you know, what Edward Ferrers does and Eleanor Dashwood, you, you can do that too. I mean, there's no end to that. But the language is very, very simple and the descriptions are sparse. It's, it's interesting in that respect because um, someone who is often compared to Jane Austen is Elena Ferrante. And in fact, really? she wrote, yes, uh, Ferrante wrote an introduction to a beautiful folio edition a year or two ago, um, uh, a new edition of Sense and Sensibility, I think it was. Um, and it's interesting as well, because when people talk about Ferrante, they talk about this thing of being able to read her on on a complex uh, level or on a superficial level, a more superficial level, let's say, where you can skim read and, and pick up, you know, the, the narrative, the, the plot, the without having to go into the minutiae of it all. And that's, uh, I think it's Ian Sampson in, in the piece that he's written for us really mentions how you can skim read Austen and most people do probably on their first readings, which yes. makes it well suited to... Or on their repeat readings. I or mean, on their repeat where readings. Where you just, where you are, I mean, I guiltily admit to reading Pride and Prejudice every year, more or less. Oh, Gilbert Ryle de nos jours. Yeah, I know, I'm sorry about that. But <laughs> and do you, do you go for the bits specifically that you know, do you skim to get to the bits that you know you really enjoy? I, I read for the telltale compression of pages getting to the happy ending. I mean, that's. I mean, th- there is no credibility or intellectual sophistication. I do. I like a. Ha- I like the happy ending, and I think that because the two central characters, Darcy and Elizabeth, in Pride and Prejudice, mm-hmm. they're getting together does feel psychologically accurate in a way that some Victorian novel happy endings or Shakespearean happy endings, for example just aren't they're not psychologically mm. plausible they're just tying up of plot plot ends for the sake of finishing yeah and what i mean austin loved quite trashy novels you know she loved a, a rollicking good read so she knew exactly what a reader required and the kind of, there's a tempo about her novels there's always something going forward in them isn't there there are not longers no uh, although perhaps nothing much happens in dramatic terms you know um, girl meets boy girl gets boy um but it's not um it, she knows exactly when to put in these stimuli in the plot and yeah. so you're guaranteed a good read but then of course you've got all the stuff that's jane austen on top of that or underneath it i mean there's an enormous um, freight of her own feelings and ideas and personality and this person who who was not a published author until quite late in her life and i, I feel as a biographer i feel that's very it's a very powerful thread well could you explain works. that for us because i think that is interesting because the novel, she, she publishes Sense and Sensibility in, in 1811 and then she dies in 1818 with two novels as yet unpublished. Is that right? Um, 1817. 1817, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> 1870, of course, of course. Oh, well, let's do it all next year. Let's do it next year in 1870. But then the novels are published in 1818, aren't they? Yes, Northanger yes, and, right, yeah. and, and Persuasion. So what... So, was she labouring under the idea that this would a lot of her stuff would never be published? How? I believe so, yes, because, I mean, she was writing early versions of Sense and Sensibility and Pride and Prejudice and uh, many of the other books from the early 1790s onwards. So she was basically, she'd been an unpublished author for almost 20 years before her first book came out. You know, and she was in her 30s. She must have felt pretty 
bitter, actually, about the fact that she knew she was a genius, clearly. I mean, she was she and her very intimate circle were the only readers of Jane Austen who now has millions and millions of readers. And, and she admires. was reading, and she read it out, didn't she? There's a, there's a sense that she may have read these books out to her circle yes, as she was writing them. Yes, because um, Martha Lloyd was, um, Jane made a joke about her. If she hears it, reads it one more time, she'll know it by heart. You know, I mean, actually, some of the close friends and, and Cassandra knew the works probably very well. But they were just stuck, you know, in that circle in manuscript. And, you know, she'd had the sale of the book that became Northanger Abbey in 1803. At that point, I mean, she was she'd waited 10 years at that point and she must have thought, thank God, I'm now going to get into print. Presumably but, that afforded her a certain amount of freedom, though, to, to develop her style and, and, and chop and yes, change. Yes, oh, certainly. But I think, as I mean, if you think of being a writer who wants to be published, I mean, the freedom that you gain from, from being allowed to keep working on your manuscripts year after year is rather outweighed by the disappointment of nobody else reading them. <laughs> and so I think, you know, it's certainly a two-edged sword, but it does, it, I think it has a huge number of, of repercussions for the works. I think it makes them, you know, as I say, very dense with with uh, these um, these little interjections that come through in most of the novels. I mean, it's not just irony, it's not pithy, it's not witty, but these kind of actual darts that, that penetrate the surface of the novel sometimes. And there's a kind of self-consciousness in, in part, I mean, not least in Northanger Abbey, which is, a, which is a parody, but even in Pride and Prejudice and, and, in, and a couple of others, there is all of a sudden the narrator steps to one side and the author seems to, to, to speak. It's the, it's a, there's a consciousness of, of the medium. Yes, in, indeed. I mean, especially, uh, that's brilliant in Northanger Abbey where she talks about the novel, you know, and suddenly kind of comes forward as the author having yeah. her own opinions. It's brilliant. And it's so, it's so outrageously rompingly good fun that yeah. passage too um, and then she kind of goes back in you know and starts doing the, the, her work as a novelist but then of course towards the end of the novel when she says you can now see because of the compression of the yeah. pages that we're all going towards a, a happy ending which is a great joke it's a wonderful brilliant joke so she's got control over all that stuff and I do think that that long period of not being published and you're saying that control was, was a good thing I think she did become a really obsessively controlling author but the good thing was that she knew what a novel should have, she could produce it, um, and she was a, a kind of life-loving person, although she didn't particularly love the life that she'd been given, but she was a, she was a very optimistically sort of inclined person. And the, the Jane Austen and the, the Austen works that we have, that we think of the, the six novels, they're very different, aren't they, to the, to the juvenilia? Yes, that early genius, I mean, the young girl of you know 18 and 19 who was entertaining her own family with first impressions which became Pride and Prejudice and who presumably was was uh, very vocal in the family circle. There, Of the very few accounts of Jane Austen as a teenager, two of them use the word affected which is really interesting and the idea that she was actually quite an extrovert, a bit of a show-off, you know kind of brainy, not massively beautiful, perfectly passable 18-year-old who was a social critic and who was, uh, you know, a, a wit and a, a delineator of character. And you get a feeling of this energy, I mean, massive energy. The juvenilia is full of confidence and, uh, you know, really good jokes, but they're worldly jokes. It's a, they're very worldly um, works. And then, of course, you become somebody who seems much more contained in the published novels. And is there a large process of editing? So something like First Impressions, which became Pride and Prejudice, are we able to chart what it first looked like and then <laughs> the process of sort of chiselling it down to what it eventually became. No, if only. Wouldn't it be nice if up a chimney in Chawton somebody yeah. found uh, the, the manuscript because um, uh, the manuscripts have all been lost apart from little bits of persuasion um, because 
printers typically just got rid of manuscripts once the book was in, in print, so we don't know. But from Austin's letters, we do know that these things were being worked on a lot. And then when Pride and Prejudice, for instance, was about to be published, she talks about the kind of final edit, this lopping and cropping, and as with Sense and Sensibility, a, a worry that she doesn't quite know what she's left with. She's worked on these books so long that she doesn't entirely... You know, the continuity problems. She doesn't entirely remember who did what. Oh, really? Um, uh, she's got to change the money values. She says to Cassandra, she's got to change oh, the God. incomes in Sense and Sensibility because it's an old story. Yeah. I mean, Sensibility itself was a, was a bit of a passé concept in 1811. I mean, it was a 1790s subject. It was a 70, they were 1790s girls. And that this... The fact that she was writing about her own youth right up to her death means that a character like Emma, who's meant to be like 19 or something, yeah. um, is the fogiest, or 20, the fogiest 20-year-old you could possibly imagine. And she's, it's completely reasonable that she and Mr Knightley get off with each other because they are of a piece. I mean, yeah. they seem to be very much in the same generation because Austin is remembering what it's like to be a girl, you know, back... And presumably Anne Elliot in Persuasion is 27, isn't she? Yes, but, but is o- over it, the hill. But but yeah. kind of, you can sense it written by a slightly older wo- woman and who admires her but recognises that she's looking back on a life where she's made decisions which may or may not have turned out correctly. Completely, and Eleanor Dashwood is a total sort of old school 19-year-old. I mean, she's, she's so sensible. Uh, she's, she's like a much older person. I thought it was interesting that in the Ang Lee film, Emma Thompson cast herself as Eleanor. And Emma Thompson was the age that Mrs Dashwood should have been, really, when she made that film. But it recognised a sort of maturity, an unreasonable maturity in Eleanor, the character, you know, that needs to be represented. Which is there in Emma as well, yeah. isn't Emma sort of being this person who wants to be controlling and yeah. directing, as if she were a middle-aged yeah, m- yeah, she behaves like a matron, doesn't she? Really? Yeah. You contrast with um, Fanny and Isabella, of course, in Northanger Abbey, who are sort of these brilliant studies of the silly seriousness of teenager. Oh, they're charming. Yeah. I love Northanger Abbey for that reason. And, and, and Catherine is just so, so much like a young woman. Oh, and, sorry. Yes, Catherine. Yeah, and, and they are. But, but that is the, the book that she was worried about in 1803, being out of date. That was also, it was not published in her lifetime. And, and the little preface she wrote for its publication apologises massively for it being a book that is, you know, oh, perhaps out of, out of date, over the hill. Um, but I think it's one of the, the freshest I'm glad you, a, I'm glad you say that, Claire, because I want to ask. So in my little intro to the yeah. paper this week, and I've done this on social media and I'm getting bombarded with abuse now. Interesting you say about persuasion. Someone, a journalist just sent me, sent me a message saying how persuasion she read at a boarding school at 16 mm. and felt every every sort of palpitation of, of, of Anne Elliot's heart, which is interesting. So anyway, I did it at my order, my top, mm. my, my six in order. And I want you to, to, to say what you think, Claire, and Theo as well. So I go Pride and Prejudice, Persuasion, Sense and Sensibility, Emma, Mansfield Park, and Bringing Up the Rear, Northanger Abbey. Mm. What, go on. What, well, what, I'm, I'm give me, give, me, give, me, the, yeah, give yeah, me the correct version. Yeah, no, my version is Persuasion, Pride and Prejudice, Emma, Sense and Sensibility, Northanger Abbey, Mansfield Park. We're not that far. We're not mm. that far apart. It's quite different. Go on then, go on. I think... Pride and Prejudice is sort of tied with Mansfield Park for me. I think Pride and Prejudice is better and and I probably enjoyed more, but Mansfield Park was the first one that I studied, so I felt oh, like I found okay. more in yes. it. 
Um, followed by Persuasion, I think, and then Northanger Abbey, and then Emma, and then Sense and Sensibility. Hmm. Isn't it interesting that Persuasion seems to me to be the aficionados when you talk to, to Austenites, yeah, Janeites? So is, 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 is it become is it become almost the sophisticated answer, Persuasion? Possibly, yes. Maybe Why is that? Because because it, it, it's mature. Because it's yeah. Because it's autumnal. It's yeah. It's it's demographic thing too. <laughs> <laughs> but was she at the peak of her powers? Because that presumably wasn't endlessly rewritten. That was written and then published. Exactly, yeah, because there's just a few. Mansfield Park was kind of written and published. So Mansfield Park's a very interesting book to look at in terms of Austin writing in the moment rather than doing this kind of, you know, catching up with her old manuscripts. And Persuasion was very much of, of that, of, you know, of, of her last year or so. And she, she had revised it. it. It's not clear whether she thought it was absolutely good to go at her death in 1817. But uh, yes, it was a very recent book. And it's about, you know, autumnal longing. And it's, it, uh, but it, it resolves everything so beautifully. I just love the, yeah. I, I love the restoration. I think, think it's the most Shakespearean of, of her plots. It's just got such a lovely, um, mellow fruitfulness to it as and, well. Yeah, and, and I think the way that the, the, the initial decision to, to separate and then it comes back again mm. with everyone older and wiser is very... It's very realistic as well, it is isn't it? That having to be in a room where your ex comes in and who's done well or not, you don't really know because you're just totally out of touch with them. It's very well, well See, observed. I think Emma doesn't linger as well because Emma to me is an unattractive character. Mm. Um, and the, the whole plot machinations that then follow yeah. her and the unattractiveness of her character actually make it quite hard to feel entirely engaged all, all the way mm. through. I don't know if that's, again, reading at a particularly unsophisticated level, but there's not so much to sort of hug close to you in Emma. I think she's, she's, she's mm. quite an annoying character. In some well, when people yes. do talk about Austen, it's always in terms of the relatability of the characters and whether you like them or you don't, and that, that, that would be true for me with Emma, yeah. Mm. Well, are there any characters, uh, Claire, you'd like to sort of celebrate or... Who's the person you dislike the most in, in, in Austin? Fiction? I think it's much easier to find out ones to, to dislike than, than love. I mean, she's full of these... I mean, it's a great crowd of fools, but they're not usually so foolish that you dismiss them. They are just normally awful. Yeah. And that's, that's her brilliance, isn't it, that she can, she can pick these characteristics out. I, mean, I think Fanny Dashwood is absolutely a terrible, terrible woman. I mean, there she is having hysterics off camera, because we don't see this, um, over the fact that uh, she hears that Edward is engaged to Lucy Steele. You know, Eleanor's just heard that, and of course it's far more important to Eleanor. Yeah. But um, the whole household on Harley Street has to grind to a halt because Fanny is having hysterics. And, and the scene, that early scene in Sense and Sensibility, where she is talking her husband down from giving the... Um, Half sisters, a proper income to almost yeah. nothing. It's it's brilliant, but it's incredibly nasty. I think the the the, the lack of self awareness of some of the characters, and there's a lot in Pride and Prejudice actually. Mm. Um, but Lydia Bennett, oh, yeah. uh, uh, the, 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 Lydia Bennett, when you've when you've romped all the way through it, and Darcy comes and, and saves the day, and mm. she's with the idiot Wickham, yes. and she she comes back home, and the dad finally lets her in, having said he's not going to let her in. And then she insists on walking ahead because she's the married one. Yes, and, her, yes, that's and the, right. these sisters have spent the last sort of month panicking and thinking yeah. their whole life is over and their reputation is soiled. And then she says, and then her mum yeah. is so delighted that she got married at all. That that I find Lydia Bennett um, the person that I would most yes. like to yeah. sort of walk away from. Exactly. I was talking to Stig about Diana Parker in Sanderton. Oh, yes. I think she's such a great character mm. because there's something 
she's unlikable because she's just ridiculous mm. and annoying with her with her affectations and her fads, uh, mm. her kind of you know green tea. She's very relatable to to you can place her in in the present moment. You know with mm. her her weird food foibles <laughs> and her desire to go bathing in the sea but only with one of the newfangled what they call b- bathing machines yes. these portable things Love a bathing there's, machine. there's just something very very now about her very kind yeah. of clean eating yes um, what what yeah. do we make of sanderton claire what, how, how if that had if she'd have lived, where where would that have appeared in the pantheon I think it's the most fascinating book i love sanderton obviously not for the plot because it it stops yeah. um, <laughs> but it is so so interesting it's it's the un polished it's the unrevised Jane Austen and it, it it's got them it's got some very very painful scenes in the scene where um Charlotte the heroine who again is one of these rather fogeyish young women um is sitting having to listen to Lady Denham drone on about stuff um she actually decides that she's not going to listen it's like Homer Simpson going mm, you know not listening um and so she she it's so intolerable I mean she listens to Lady Denham for a bit and then the conversation takes such a bad turn it's she's so unpleasant that Charlotte just has to she can't say anything because it's not allowed so she has to retire into silence and and just think over the noise and she knows that Lady Denham's still talking and then Austin does this amazing paragraph full of of Charlotte's actual thoughts, which are these kind of disjointed stream of consciousness thoughts. Ah. And it's a most incredible scene. And whether Austen would have left it like that had she finished a draft and then gone back and rewritten it. I mean, she might have, re, you know, recalculated that scene and and gone into the third person. Who knows? Because Austen's amazing at this point of view thing. I and mean, she kind of zooms around like one of those cameras, you know, um, like a drone, really, yeah. basically, or something at the US Open, comes right down and looks at the, the, the character and then zooms away. And sometimes you get this f- first-person pronoun, as you do bursting through in Northanger Abbey. I noticed one in Sense and Sensibility, which I was rereading the other week. Uh, it's about halfway through volume two, and suddenly you get this eye... Yeah. I am now going to... You think, hang on, where, who, who are you? Who, who's the yeah, I, yeah. Who are you? And, and where have you gone? I mean, she go, go, it pops up and then it goes. Um, but she she does kind of inhabit scenes and she she looks at the Dashwoods, mm. you know, as if she's a fly on the wall. And you can, but then see, she's, you can see why Virginia Woolf and Catherine Mansfield would have been so... Completely. ...absorbed by... It's a brilliant Austin. technique. But, I mean, nobody had done this before. I mean, I can't think of any um, of the 18th century novelists that she adored who would who just move around like that and who then kind of hover behind the heroine. I mean, she... Yeah, the free she, and direct yeah. style in a way. I mean, yeah. which is the... which When you read about it, it's the sort of, you see developed over the... Does it become more and more perfected, do you think, over the Completely. course of... Completely. I think it's, it's brilliant. But I don't know about whether she would have done more to Sanderton to kind of take away from this yeah, extraordinary... Yeah. Uh, I mean, she might have polished it into... Because I, I do think that her novels hang together as a group because she did do all this polishing. She did deliberately try to make them look like a coherent group of six novels, and they're not really. The no. heroines aren't like each other at all, and nothing about them, if you put them all anonymously out there, would necessarily connect them. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Let's talk about the afterlife of Jane Austen, because she wrote a very good book called Jane's Fame, How Jane Austen Conquered the World. Um, I mean, I don't want you to, to summarise your entire, <laughs> entire book, but how did she do that and, and, and why? And I suppose when? When was the moment that, that Jane Austen went from being a novelist of interest to people to being a dominant cultural figure? Yes, well, it, that's, a, that's a very good question. I don't know that I could answer it very easily. But uh, when I was thinking about writing that book and I started to notice where Austenishness was all around one every day. It was just astonishing. You know, you kind of tune into it, and it's absolutely in the most unusual places, uh, you know, including around the back of a football goal, of an advert for electronics. There was a, a conference that was talking about extreme pornography that was, you know, quoting from Emma, all sorts of different things. Uh, you know, Dick Cheney was, was talking about Jane Austen, just Almost every area of life you could get an Austen reference in, and people, of course, love the first sentence of Pride and Prejudice. Journalists love it, Ugh. and they we endlessly. Have a we have a rule here, actually. My Michael, who's not here, I, I I did an introduction to this book, and I deliberately wrote a pastiche of the first sentence just to annoy Michael, because he he does a lot of he gets a lot of pieces about Austen in, and and the number of reviewers who start with it's a truth oh, universally. I know acknowledged and but it's it's sort of is it almost Shakespearean I mean there's maybe Dickens maybe but I think less so with Dickens I'm not sure Dickens pervades the consciousness in the exactly, way exactly because Dickens we have Dickensianness, yeah which is very recognizable but Austin um it's I think it really took off actually after the 1995 films on tv but it had been ter- I mean obviously she was very very popular from the late 1870s onwards I mean after the first biography which which augmented the novels which weren't that very well known during the 19th century generally they were out of print for a decade or so after her death and she slowly got some critical um, notice during the 19th century but really she was treated as a a passé Georgian novelist. So the great Victorian novelists don't owe a debt to her really? Not really because uh, not that many of them had read her and people like Charlotte Bronte who very much objected to G.H. Lewis's uh, advocacy of Jane Austen um, read her to catch up with this stuff, but she'd already objected to Austen on principle and she didn't like the... the, So actually Austen's legacy was strangely, you know, 
um, end stopped at that point. Yeah. And it really got um, much more activated around the whole idea of her life and how charming a person she'd been and how unobjectionable. And the novels, of course, then became, you know, there was the, the cult of Divine Jane. That was a late Victorian cult. Again, uh, you know, rather... Um, fastidious people trying to characterise themselves culturally through Jane Austen. Uh, they saw her as somebody who represented gentility. Virtue signalling. We're talking about Victorian virtue, virtue signalling. Exactly. What a wonderful phrase that is. Where was it? Yeah. In, in the 1890s. But that's exactly what they were doing. They were virtue signalling. And people still do that, obviously. Yeah, um, indeed. And then she was one of the first English authors to be treated to scholarly editing in the you know early days of the 20th century that, that, that in itself was quite an interesting time wasn't it because in the sort of 1920s mm. there were the, there was the chapman kind of scholarly authoritative version asking people to go back and and realize how important and accomplished these works were at the same time as that i think the austin family were still in in charge of her literary legacy and they were sort of commercializing and, and pushing a different version of austin so yes. you had this bifurcation of Yes, you did. Legacy. And also when the letters were published, because it was a, a, a matter of, of dissent that when her letters were published, people thought that was actually very inappropriate to publish the letters of a, of a woman who clearly had not intended any of those things to be read. You know, they were thought of as very personal documents. Also things like the Watson, Sanditon, the Juvenilia. And the family did start to to publish these works and were criticised for it in many ways. But of course, if they destroyed them, that would have been terrible um but then the scholarly work on austin um was part of of her being an uh, easy cannon fodder i mean like yeah. you know a literary cannon fodder uh, the discipline of english literature was just starting up um, did levis like her I, I'm, I'm um, sure. i can't remember i'm sure he probably did is, is she in the canon of the levis canon you know i can't remember no, she's, but she's very studied. I mean, the things I yeah. remember doing at university because she because she wrote six novels, yes, which are all easy to read. Mm. And in, she's very studyable, isn't she? She she's absolutely yes. opens up to to, to studying because they're they're sophisticated. They're, there's lots going on, but equally exactly. they're easy to read. And you can it's quite hard to read all of Dickens. Yes, it's very hard to read all of James. Yes, quite hard to read all of Elliot. Austen, you can kind of compartmentalize and say, I'll just read the six novels, and then you've read. Yeah. A major, is there a single major author that you can do that with other than Austen? Maybe not. Not really, no. Well, I suppose the Brontes Maybe. didn't write very many books. No. Um, but, yeah, Austen's It doesn't feel as complete, does it? The, the oeuvre feels yeah. kind of complete for, for, for Austen, doesn't it? Yes, because I think she was doing this sort of major controlling exercise on them. And, and they are extremely um, lovable. And yeah. as well as readable and they, they're very translatable I mean the simplicity of the language means that they can also um, you know they travelled quite far Oh is she big in the, other parts of the world? Uh, she was translated into French very early on I mean sort of pirated into French and she was um, uh, in English pirated in America and then she had these strange uh, you know like James Fenimore Cooper basically nicked parts of, of, of Austin to write his own novel Precaution yeah. In 1821. No one and, would spot that. Yeah. It's not very exciting, does it? No, no it wasn't very yeah, exciting. Yeah. I'm glad I got onto the, uh, to the Mohawks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, who did she influence then? I want to talk, five, five, finish on adaptations, but who did, you know, who read Jane Austen? Who, who do, you, do you see as the sort of the heirs to, to, to Austen? Who did she influence? Well, Catherine Mansfield and Virginia Woolf very much so, I think, because, and also Woolf's writing on, on Austen is very uh, astute. It's I lovely, mean, yeah. I, we have I, a big piece in the book we've got. Yes, by, it's, by, a, by. It's, a, it's a wonderful essay, uh, and so many of Woolf's essays absolutely nail something about a writer in a writerly way. I mean, she writes 
both critically and as a novelist, and so she appreciates all the sort of levels of uh, of, of skill and craft that go into the Austin uh, works, and also this this creation of character, the keeping of people in play, which is, you know, um, very much is what people would love to be able to, to write. But um, I think the trouble with Austin is that people try to emulate the wittiness yeah. and it just falls horribly short. As with the very famous first sentence of Pride and Prejudice, it just sounds so tinny, doesn't it, it after does. a while? It does. And, and yet the manner of it, the, the manner that she herself is lampooning... Exactly uh, right, yeah. ...is what also persists along with appreciation of the lampoon. I mean, she's meant to be our big ironist, isn't she? She's meant to be the person who taught us that we are ironic as a nation and that we can glory in this and it's a great part of our culture and our, our heritage in literature. And yet you have things like the £10 note that's just coming out with, as many, many people have pointed out, an absurd quotation on it. From Caroline um, Bingley. From Caroline uh, Bingley, who... Terrible before she, again. Before she person. says that, terrible, wonderfully observed, terrible yeah. character, who just before she says, I declare there's no such pleasure as reading or whatever, um, has given a great yawn and yeah. has interrupted <laughs> yeah. Darcy and Elizabeth, who are the real readers, yep. and she's borrowed the second volume to thwart him. So she's completely... She's reading upside down almost, yes, isn't she? Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's a, it is the most ill-chosen quote. Yeah. And yet the Bank of England, having had this pointed out to them, they decided that didn't matter, actually. Didn't you think, matter. hang on. It, mm. And yet this woman is being celebrated for her irony. Well, there's an irony. In, in it is. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, I thought Patrick O'Brien, I mean, I'm just reading Patrick O'Brien, who's the sort of mm. naval uh, historical fiction. That's true. He loves Jane Austen. Yes. And it's the same period. And you can just, I mean, it's very different because it's sort of slightly swashbuckling historical fiction. But there's there's something of the mm. pervading irony through Ian it. Forster was a great admirer of yeah. Jane Austen. I think there's quite a lot of, of her in him. Um Adaptations. You say that when you're feeling mm. low, you turn to an adaptation. We have in the paper this week, uh, inexplicably, we didn't review Clueless when it came out, the right. Alicia Silverstone version of yes. Emma set in an LA high school. So we've asked someone to review it again oh. <laughs> uh, for it. Because to me, that's I, I, I very clearly remember the BBC adaptation of Pride and Prejudice, yes. the TV one with the famous Darcy wet t-shirt yes, competition when he comes indeed. out of the lake. Who's it played by? Uh, Colin Firth. Colin Firth. Who is it played by? Know. Yes, yes. But you, you remember him emerging, glistening from, from the lake? Yes, um, I do. And that was... Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Quite right, too. Um, so... I'm going to say, Clears, what, what do you think? What do you turn to when you want to, to watch a bit of Austin? Who's done it well? Well, Colin in the Lake has done it well, but of course it's not Austin. That's a, a scene that they put in. I know, yeah, indeed. Yeah. So, so that's the least Austenian piece of, of, of TV. Um, I, I enjoyed Clueless when I first saw it, but I, I can't say it kind of has gripped, gripped me ever since. I really liked... Um, a biopic, uh, weirdly enough, called Miss Austin Regrets. It was on the television about oh, yeah. 10 years ago, um, and it had Olivia Williams in it. And what I liked about it was that the script was very closely based on Austin's letters, which are themselves one of my favourite texts. I love her letters, and I read those more often than I read the, the novels. Really? really? Um, and I think the letters repay endless attention, especially if you just take them one at a time. Don't just uh, read them as a block, but read them as actual sort of individual letters. And the scriptwriter of that biopic picked up on a lot of little things from the letters, which which actually mainstream biographers haven't quite assimilated into the yeah. Austin story. The Austin, yeah. So, you know, the fact that she was um, drinking quite a bit at one point, and there's a kind of slightly woozy scene in that when she's 
possibly speaking a little bit out of turn to That's Charles Hayden, the doctor. That's interesting. Also because um, there has been a gin brand sort of launched on the back of Jane Austen, so it, that makes it seem somehow more relevant, <laughs> yes. I suppose. But I was, I was unaware gin of that. That's there fantastic. Is, there is, yeah. We, we, yeah. we had it in the paper in January, didn't we? Yeah. Have you seen any... Good, good or bad? Um, well, I would, I would obviously uh, say yes, clueless, and I'm going to now lower the tone massively. Go and on, it's not is because that, is that possible? To yes. Go further? Go on. Oh no, I'm going to go lower. Go on. So this isn't because I'm saying it's the most important adaptation or particularly very good, but it's what made me interested in Jane Austen when I was about ten, um, and it was a program put out by PBS in America called Wishbone, and it was uh, the the main character was a Jack Russell. He lived in Texas. And he used to trot back through time and uh, take Thank on the do. roles yeah, yeah, take on the roles of, of leading characters in, in the classics of, of Western fiction. And so there was one there was an episode called <laughs> No First, one saw this coming called <laughs> First Impressions, as in fur dog oh, fur, first okay. impressions. The original title and of Pride played, and Prejudice. Yes, exactly. Isn't that and he played Darcy. And actually, as far as kids' telly goes, and I don't watch any now obviously, because yeah. I'm an adult. Yeah, it was very good. Well, yes, but you have a reason to. Yeah, I do. I do. <laughs> so, it t- so just to be absolutely clear, this uses the, the original title of Pride and Prejudice yes. and tells the story of Pride and Prejudice through a Texan dog. Yeah, t- a Texan talking Jack Russell. Have you not? How have you not seen this? You call I, yourself an Austin know. scholar, and then, and then, and then, I don't know how I missed that one. Yes. This guy, it was Wishbone. Wishbone. May I'm going to check wishbone. that out. I think the tagline was something like a small dog with a massive literary imagination, or something. Big vocabulary. Something catchier than that. It's a truth university. <laughs> Any horrors that you've seen? Did you ever? Did you well, ever... I didn't see the zombie film. I'm oh, I, I started watching yeah. that. It's not quite as bad as as you think it's going to be. There's a little bit of archness that knows it knows what it's doing. Yes, but it was still. It, still it would need a whole, an awful lot of archness. Yeah, to, it wasn't quite. Uh, but I did speak to the Jane Austen Society of North America in the week that that film came out, and a lot of them had seen it and they loved it. Yeah, I thought they'd be down on it like a ton of bricks, but um, actually not. And uh, but I did see the book, uh, the Seth Graham Brown's book. Oh yeah. Um, and th- I thought it was amazing as a phenomenon that you can take eighty-five percent of Austen's book put 15% of ultraviolet zombie mayhem of your own into it <laughs> and come up with a book that sells millions of copies, much more than Pride and Prejudice really? in any given period. I mean, yes, it, absolutely millions. Did and that make you angry? Uh, no, it didn't make me angry because I don't feel I, I kind of, you know, have to <laughs> stand up for all the yeah. But it is, is astonishing that less Austin goes further. I mean, I think in terms of, of her fame and her recognisability, which is what Margaret Oliphant pinned down in the 1870s that Austin had this um, ability you know to 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 push people's buttons they didn't have to write her books but that she was a recognizable cultural figure Um, and that I think the Seth Graham Brown phenomenon displays that perfectly you know you can have a bit less Austin goes even further Oh dear, that's well. On that, de- on that note. yeah, slightly, <laughs> it's a slightly depressing note. Uh, Claire, thank you so much for 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 coming in to discuss all things uh, Austen. Um, the paper this week is a celebration of Jane Austen, and we have this book as well, which contains essays by E. M. Forster and Virginia Woolf. Do go to the tlscouk to see this week's edition of the paper, which, amid all of this ostentation, also contains Benjamin Markovitz on the history of cool and Helen Morales on the classical history of disgust. 
and tweet this podcast at fbfm underscore podcast with your comments and thoughts please do review us on itunes next week we're going to be musing upon that strange orange and often absentee president of the united states as we are publishing a piece by edward lutvac that gulp predicts a trump dynasty in power for the next 16 years Yes, you may well both look depressed. Uh, and that's what we'll be talking oh, about. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. So to cheer us up, this is a, a fantastic farm by Matt, our producer. He has discovered online, of course, Thea, it's Wishbone. Wishbone the talking dog. Wishbone the talking dog doing first impressions. <laughs> His version of... Pride and Prejudice, seen once by a young Thea Lenarduzzi in 1992. So to play us out, you're going to want to listen to this. Here it is, Wishbone, the talking dog. It is your turn to speak, Mr Darcy. I talk to the dance, and you ought to make some kind of remark about the size of the room. Or the number of couples. Your sister will dance with just about anybody, huh? I guess you prefer to criticise everyone. I have heard all about you. Well, don't believe everything you hear. That's, that's proper, that's the genuine dialogue, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so good. Yeah. And that's the genuine jacket as well. <laughs> when you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.